Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. If you have your Bible, if you would stand with me as I read from Exodus chapter 15. We're going to be in 15, 16, and 17, so yes, I hope you ate a big breakfast, but we will be here until tip-off later this evening. Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah. But they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. That is why it was named Marah. The people grumbled to Moses, what are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. The Lord made a statute and an ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. He said, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, and pay attention to his commands, And keep all his statutes. I will not inflict any illness on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, and there were 12 springs and 70 date palms, and they camped there by the water. Let's pray together. Father, what we do not know, I pray you would teach us this morning. And Lord, for our hearts who so often stray away and complain, Lord, Guide us to love you with all of our heart, to trust you with all of our mind, and to obey you with all of our strength. Father, what we are not, make us for your glory and our good. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, thank you. You know what makes me sick? There's an old radio personality named Earl Pitts. Anybody ever heard of Earl Pitts? He used to play on K99. That's how I know I'm from South Texas, because K99 out of Corpus when I was growing up. Every morning, my brother and I made it a point to listen to Earl Pitts before we went to school. I'm just saying. He used to start his show with that little thing. You know what makes me sick? You know. Well, here it is, complaining. I get sick and tired of people who are always complaining about whatever they find wrong, or at least what they think is wrong. Even if it's right, they think it's wrong, and they're going to let you know it's wrong, and they're going to complain and grumble about it. Have you ever been around somebody? You're like, yes, I'm married to him for 40 years. (laughs) Always complaining. You notice I scored some points there because I said him, not her. (laughs) Gentlemen, take notes. The worst people are the people who complain about complainers. Can I get an amen? I'm grumbling about grumblers, and that makes me the worst of all. When we look at Israel in chapters 15, 16, and 17, it is a moment where we find them constantly complaining against the Lord and his man Moses. So when I pray this morning, we pray, Lord, guide us to love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. 
and to obey you with the same passion that we say we love you so that we will not grow bitter. Look at chapter 15 as we read verses 22 through 27. Here, God makes what is bitter sweet. Just two years ago, you'll remember this well. Two years ago, it's two years. We were all locked down, right? There was a shortage of toilet paper. Now, if there's ever something to complain about, maybe it's a shortage of toilet paper. But I couldn't believe it. I mean, y'all were all on the mainland, right? Like, we're stuck on an island in the Pacific Ocean. There ain't no toilet paper coming anytime soon until the next ship arrives, right? Fortunately, Amber overordered on Amazon, and we had, like, the black market on toilet paper on island. But it was a really difficult time for a lot of people. Now we face gas prices, right? And we're like, drove to Houston for a little visit uh, with somebody from the church uh, up there right now. And, and uh, I got so excited when I saw $3.71. I'm like, I got to mark this place and hit it on the way home because I'm going to need gasoline. It's like revival broke out for $3.71. Crazy. We find Israel in the midst of this journey three days after the great deliverance of the Red Sea. The plagues have come and gone. Now they've walked through the Red Sea. Andy wrote, uh, read just a few minutes ago from chapter 15, which is the song of deliverance out of that, you know, singing about how great God is and his deliverance and all that he did has done for them at this point. But just three days into the journey, they're out of water and they haven't found water. You understand that? Three days without water and our bodies are shutting down. We just can't go much longer than that. So it's a time of, of crisis. And they arrive at what looked like a promising scene from the distance. They could see water. They head for that place. And yet when they arrive there, they call it Mara. Because the water that they found was too bitter to drink. Bitterness there is because the mineral content, most think, is because it's so high. It's just not drinkable. You drink too much of it, it's going to kill you. It's going to make you sick for sure. This is not the last time we'll come across that word Mara, bitterness. In the story of Naomi and Ruth, Naomi returns to her people, and her name means pleasant, Naomi, pleasant. But she returns and she says, call me Mara, bitterness. Her heart was bitter for how God's hand had been against her. Call me bitter. But when we look at our situation and we look at our life, I want to ask you this question. What is the first response when you sense trouble coming your way? What's the first response? For Israel, they complained. All hope seemed lost here. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I quoted someone and their thought there was that worry is practical atheism, functional atheism. And here we are again in this crisis moment when they're worried, and that worry will lead to grumbling and complaining. It's kind of natural that they would complain about no water because, that, again, it's one of our basic needs. But that attitude and action of grumbling and complaining really shows a deeper problem in their heart, which is a lack of trust. It shows that they're not at a point yet where they are mature and, and trusting the Lord and his provision. They're insecure in that. And... A little bit self-centered along with that. They should have gone to the Lord in prayer, but instead they complain. What I want you to see here is something that we often do. They did. In chapter 15, which is 
titled in my Bible, which those titles aren't there in the Hebrew scripture, so don't think that's a biblical title, but they title it for us to kind of get a glimpse, an understanding of what we're about to read. It's titled Israel's Song. It's that song of deliverance again that they sang about God's deliverance from Egypt and how he dealt with Pharaoh. But listen to verse two. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. It could go, I could go on, and Andy read from verse 11, and, and, and we could hear more of that same kind of talk of God's great deliverance and, and amazing insight into this song, but three days later, they're complaining about the one they were just singing about. I mean, have we not done the same thing on a Sunday morning where we come and we sing of God's praises and we, we, we give him all glory and honor while we're in this room, but I mean, 30 minutes in this Sermon's not done. What happens? We start complaining a little bit. Or we walk out the door and we start grumbling. I, I mean, it, it's just, it's the things that, that, we, that we, how we are. It, it's, a, it's a sin. And, and, and God is going to call that out of Israel this morning. So we're worshiping God. The Lord is my strength and my song, and yet we're out of water. Our first reaction to trouble ought to be driven by a deep and abiding faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, which means we hit our knees and we pray. But too often, it's taught from a heart of grumbling and complaining and worry. When we look at Israel, I mean, I fully admit it's easy to sit here and point the finger at them. But I know if I had been in that situation, I would have been worried too. I would have been stressed. How much more, though, is it today to sing of his unfailing love and how good our God is and walk out the door and start grumbling and complaining? How quick we are to lose our perspective on the presence and the goodness and the provision of God in our life when something doesn't go our way or the way we think it should go. Proverbs 23, 17 says, don't let your heart envy sinners Instead, fear the Lord, for then you will have a future and your hope will not be dashed. There's a heart that's looking out at the world, looking at what the world has that I don't. Why are they getting it and I'm not? I deserve that. And I'm not getting it. But rather, my heart should be intent on, uh, on the fear of the Lord and awe and reverence of who he is. I mean, in chapter 15, Israel had it right, but chapter 16, their, their heart has gone away. But when we keep our heart focused and we abide in that, that deep faith and trust in that relationship with Jesus, we read verse 18, he says, then you will have a future and a hope that will not be dashed. In Christ, he is our hope. He is the hope that will not disappoint. Well, Moses takes the problem to the Lord. He is their leader after all. And so he takes the problem to the Lord and God gives him a clear direction. Listen, don't think that complaining is the way to get to God to act. We need, to, we need to have a heart that is consecrated and set on him through prayer. And in so doing, it shows that deep trust and that response and his response, a deep trust that his response is gonna be right, it's gonna be powerful, and it's gonna be on time. Not a minute too soon, not a minute late. God's answer to Moses was to throw a big log into the water. 
I mean, yeah, let's just go get some logs and throw them out there, and we got all of our freshwater problems solved, right? Only God could come up with something like that. But what happens is God uses that moment, and he turns the bitter water, that which is not drinkable, to sweet. The sweetness of God is alive and well in that water, and God answers their prayer, and he meets their needs. That is his grace and his mercy on display in that provision. They were complaining. You know what happens when my children complain? They get a Bible verse thrown back in their face. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. It's one of the themes of our home. It's stated a lot these days. It's on our wall. Helps us remember. You know who gets to read that more than anybody? I fully admit it. I fully admit it. Listen, God takes this moment here when they are grumbling and complaining to bless his people. And then he makes this covenant with them. Look at the requirement of the covenant. He says, the Lord made, it, uh, made an ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. It's a test. Where is their heart? He said, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands, keep all his statutes. I will not inflict any illness on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Listen to that again, the directions. Carefully obey, do what is right in his sight, pay attention, keep all the statutes, then no infliction of the plagues on you that were in Egypt. If their heart is centered on the Lord, and they're in that relationship of trust, and they trust everything that God is leading them and how he's leading them, then when your heart is there, you're going to obey. You're, you're going to, to, to do what is right. You, these things are going to come naturally. It's kind of a fruit of the, the Spirit working uh, in us and through us as we're uh, abiding with him and obeying. But then he has this word here. This, the name is Yahweh Rophi. It's at the end of verse 26. I want you to underline that. For I am the Lord who heals you. That means that he is the Lord who will bring wellness. He is the Lord that will bring soundness to you. He is the one who just turned what was bitter into sweet and made it drinkable for you to consume. He is going to lead them into this place. Not only is it just that moment, but in verse 27, look, he leads them to a place called Elam where there's plenty of water to drink and plenty of food to eat. He is providing everything they need for this very moment. Exodus chapter 16 brings us the bread from heaven, the manna from heaven. What a fabulous story. But it doesn't take long that once they leave Elam in verse, uh, verse 1 and, and 2 of chapter 16, it doesn't take long. In fact, by the middle of verse 2, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They're complaining about God's man, Moses and his partner, his brother, Aaron. They'd reached, they left Elam about halfway between Elam and Sinai, and they're out of food. They're out of food. We can live a little bit longer without food than we can without water, but it doesn't take long for those hunger pains to kick in. And even though they have seen firsthand how God made a provision in situations like this, they complain again. Not only do they complain, but look what they say in verse 3. The Israelites said to them, Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into the wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. They actually just stated 
Rather than seeing all the miracles, the plagues that God worked, the deliverance from Egypt, rather than seeing the amazement of the Passover event, rather than walking through the Red Sea on dry ground when the waters crashed back down on Pharaoh's army, rather than seeing all of that, rather than drinking sweet water instead of bitter water, rather than all of that, we wish we could go back to Egypt. And if we were in Egypt, we would have just died by God's hand. We would rather have died in Egypt. At least in our dying, we had pots full of meat and all the bread we could ever have. We were, in other words, comfortable. Jim, Tim Chester stated that uh, grumbling, complaining often posits idealized and unrealistic alternatives. They were complaining about Egypt when they were in Egypt. That's why God moved. He heard their cry. Now that they're out of Egypt, they want to go back to Egypt because they think it's a wonderful alternative to the current situation. We would rather die than be where we are now. Listen, friends, God is moving his people forward. It's one of the themes, the great themes of Exodus, forward to knowing him, forward to trusting him, forward to glorify him. But if you're constantly looking backwards, you're going to stumble moving forward every time. Just ask Lot's wife. She looked turned and looked the other way and turned into a pillar of salt. Hey, listen, there's no prayer for Moses this time. God speaks directly to him. In verse 40, he says, I am going to rain down bread from heaven for you. And then he gives a whole series of instructions on when and how to pick up the manna from heaven. You know, from this moment on, for 40 years, God, would he, he led his people through the wilderness, feeding them manna time after time, day after day, except on the seventh day. Even when they get to the border of the promised land, God's ready to take them in and the spies go out. Ten of them come back and say, there ain't no way. And they walk away. God makes them wander then through the desert the rest of the time. Even after they disobeyed in that moment, God still provided the manna for them. That manna, that That's a supernatural provision. If you were to read verses 11 through 15, you'll see it is God who is going to provide not only the manna, the bread, but also at twilight, he's going to provide the quail, the meat, the protein that they need. And in the morning, there's going to be bread. Until you are full, God is going to provide it. Then you will know, he says, then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. So at evening, the quail came, they covered the camp, they picked them up, and the next The next morning, there's the manna. It's a supernatural provision that God is giving him. Then in verses 17 through 20, you'll see that it's a sufficient provision. God provided every single thing they needed. There was no more needed. There was was plenty. He didn't run out. It's sufficient for everything. In fact, he gives them some instructions. Pick up two quarts. The person who gathered had Uh, uh, gathered a lot, had no surplus. The person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he uh, needed to eat. And then verse 19, he says, no one is to let any any of it remain until morning. You better eat it all. Well, verse 20, as so often goes, someone thought, I know better than Moses. I'm gonna save it. The next morning they woke up and it stunk with worms and maggots. Every single thing God provided is absolutely sufficient. Then we see in verse 21 and 22, it's a daily provision. Six out of seven days, God provides it. The seventh day is a day of rest. So they gather a a portion on the sixth day 
God holds it over to the seventh day so they can rest and not have to work. All of this is pointing us today to see what they needed to see, which is that we have to trust God one day at a time. Some of you are, gonna, are, are worried about things that are so far out of your control. Next week, the week after, some of you are you're, you're hamstrung by your calendar. Sometimes I can get like that. We're so worried about things and we're missing today. We're missing today. We've got to trust God one day at a time. There is no alternative plan that you can offer to the Lord that is better than his. His plan is the one we've got to follow. So again, we've got to take it one day at a time. On some level, this would be like saying, hey, thanks for Jesus, but here's my plan. God is teaching his people to trust him one day at a time. Jesus reinstated this or, or, or stated it again for us in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 34. He said, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Right before this is where he says, seek first the kingdom of God. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today, if you're so focused on tomorrow, you're missing one of the greatest blessings and promises of Scripture. Lamentations chapter 3. His mercies are new every morning. Listen, I don't know if God, I don't think really God gives us grace today for tomorrow. If we live our life as a series of what ifs or maybes, listen, God gives you the grace you need for today. You live in that grace. You put your head on your pillow and you close your eyes. You say your prayers and then the next day comes and the sun rises and that scripture of lamentations comes true. His mercies are new. But his mercies are not new for tomorrow, today. They're here for today. You will have what you need tomorrow, trusting the Lord. Look at today. You remember what God told Paul too, what the Lord told Paul. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. I believe that holds over into our daily life as well. It's not just about the, the thorns in our side or our flesh. It's about our daily life. His grace is sufficient for all of our troubles. He will see us through, but day after day after day, but one day at a time. And now, what is the whole point of this? I, here's what it is. God is testing their heart. God is shepherding their heart. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse two and three. Turn over to Deuteronomy, if you will, for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter eight. I'll get there myself. Mm -hmm. What a beautiful verse. This is Deuteronomy chapter eight, verses two and three. Now this is after where we are in Exodus, okay? So they're looking back. Moses is looking back here. They're not to the promised land yet. But he says, remember... Oh, Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your fathers had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That last part of verse three, that you would know that we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Listen, it was never about filling their bellies. 
It was never about that. It was about their heart, how God would shepherd their heart. He's trying to shepherd their heart to get them to a place to trust and depend on him, his presence, his provision, his power, his promises, all of those. He's trying to get them to lean on him and trust, not in their own understanding, but to lean on him, to be in awe and reverence of him and how he is going to provide. It's about their heart, depending on God's word, depending on his provision, his presence. This is why Jesus teaches his disciples, give us this day our daily bread. It's not about going to H-E-B and getting some warm tortillas that they just made or buying a loaf of bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, we acknowledge you are our provider. Everything about my life, I trust you. Give us this day our daily bread. Calling back to the time when God provided this manna for his people. Chapter 17. Moving quickly. Chapter 17, we find now yet another moment when God will act on behalf of his people. The next stop on the journey is a place called Rephidim. It's out in the wilderness of sin. Moving there, they're almost to Sinai where they're going to hear from the Lord and the Ten Commandments. But they camped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. Uh Uh-oh. What do you think they're going to do? You guessed it. They complained. They're grumbling again. Give us water to drink. And then, like an exasperated parent, Moses says, why are you complaining to me? Well, dude, we saw you throw the log in the water back there, and it worked. What are you going to do this time? Why are you testing the Lord? Moses, now he's getting to the heart of, why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The plagues, the deliverance through the Red Sea, the bitter water turned sweet, the manna that they would have eaten this day before they started complaining. So Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while, they're going to stone me. So God gives him an answer. He says in verse five, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. The last stop before Sinai The people are standing there accusing Moses of trying to kill them again. He's had enough of their complaints. The people are testing God. In verse 7, it says that he named, Moses named the place Masa and Meribah because the Israelites complained. It means testing and arguing because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Not only are they demanding provisions from Moses, a man who could not make that happen, unless God was with him and did that work. But verse three, they questioned God's protection. Now they're questioning in verse seven, his very presence with them. I mean, think about that for a moment. And what's happening is that their grumbling is toxic. Today in the church, grumbling is absolutely toxic. Complaining, it's infectious, even more so than what we've been through in this pandemic. And when we start grumbling and we start complaining, it begins to spread. And it doesn't take long before one complainer or a grumbler turns into a whole group. 
It should not be that way. Because we'll repeat whatever we hear, even if it isn't right. You remember that old telephone game where you sat in a room full of your friends and the teacher starts on one side and then whatever she said works around the room and you've always got the one knucklehead somewhere that completely says something out of the blue and messes it all up and by the time it gets to the end, it's not anything close to what the teacher started with. You remember that? That's what grumbling and complaining does to our heart. And it can shatter a local church. Of course, the only way to stop that is to go to the source and cut it off at the root. Complaining and grumbling, it'll grow just like bitterness if we nurture that in our heart. I think what we see here is that grumbling and complaining, growing and being nurtured by the people. It's putting God to the test with their grumbling, even to the point of, is God even with us anymore? What you're really saying is, God has provide, uh, failed to provide He's failed to deliver the life that I want. I don't deserve this. I deserve more than this. I need better than this. All of those things, and we're questioning his goodness. We're questioning his presence. We're saying, God, you're not running my life the way I can run it. I'll do it better than you. Listen, don't test God. Don't grumble against him. Don't complain against him. Testing means that we're grumbling. Trusting means that we're praising. We want to be people of praise. In Psalm 95, there's a song there calling back to this moment, and it says in Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, this very place, as on the day of Massa, this place in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. The evidence was clear. God's presence was all around. His provision was all around. His power had already been made known so many times, and yet they're testing and grumbling against him. That grumbling heart will ultimately lead them to wonder in the wilderness for 40 years, and this current generation of Exodus 16 and 17 will not see the promised land. The remedy for that kind of heart is to remember what God has done. Remember his grace. Remember his mercy. Here's what God does this time. He tells Moses, Moses, take that staff in your hand, the one that you used to strike the Nile, Take that in your hand. Take some elders with you. Go before them. Moses, I'm going to go before you. Moses, I'm going to stand in front of you. And I've preached through Exodus. I've studied Exodus. I've read through Exodus. It's one of my favorite Old Testament books. And for whatever reason, the Lord has shown this week what verse 6 says. I never caught it. I am going to stand there in front of you not just standing there in front of you, he says, on the rock, that God is standing on the rock in front of Moses, that Moses then is to strike that rock, and when he strikes that rock, water will come out of it, and the people will drink. By grumbling, they've put God on trial. They've stood before God. God stood before Moses now on the rock, and he says, strike that rock. You've got God standing on the rock. You've got the people lobbing their complaints against God, and there in the middle is Moses. And so he does exactly what God said. He struck the rock, and in a way, it's God taking the judgment that those people deserved. That rock where God is standing didn't deserve to be struck. The people of God needed to be struck. Why? Because they're not following his will. They're not living and trusting him. They're complaining about him. They're lobbing their grumblings at him. Moses was tired. He was like, Lord, what am I going to do with these people? I can't take it anymore. And and so he could have, but instead of 
bringing it on them, God said, I'm going to stand before you. I'm on the rock. Strike the rock and see how God will deliver your people. Friends, all of this points us to our true manna and our living water. There is no doubt in my mind how the Old Testament connects to the New Testament and how these stories help point us forward to the true and better Israel, that is Jesus Christ. That bitter water to sweet water, that daily manna and quail, and then that water flowing forth from the rock as God stood in front of of Moses on that rock with the grumbling and the, the people complaining about him. These moments show us still how God, even when we're complaining, moves his people forward. Eventually, they get to that promised land. The story is not all that different for us today as God is moving us forward to look more like Christ. Here's how it points us to Jesus. One is this. Jesus lived the life we could not and cannot live. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is already in the wilderness, the desert wilderness, and he's there for 40 days, which correlates to the 40 years of Israel in the desert. There he is tempted The first temptation is recorded by Matthew is that he faced hunger. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Israel faced hunger. How did Jesus treat this moment? Much different than Israel did. It says in verse 2, after he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. His response is fascinating. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Doesn't that sound like Deuteronomy chapter eight? Doesn't that sound exactly like the lesson God was trying to teach his people in the desert wilderness? It's not the manna that you need, it's God. You need God, that's what you need. And he identified with that wilderness journey of Israel. But unlike Israel, Jesus completely was obedient. He never grumbled and he never complained even when he was on the cross. He is the one who passed every test and fulfilled every aspect of God's law to perfection. He is the word that we need. He is the word that we must consume. Second thing we see in this is that Jesus himself uses and teaches about this moment for the manna from heaven to tell the Israelites of his day that he is the bread of life. That's found in John chapter 6. Jesus there feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. And as soon as they're done, he withdraws, and the next day, the crowds find him in a place called Capernaum. But in John chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus shares this truth about the people. They they didn't really like what he had to say, but he shared it anyway. And he says there in verse 26, I tell you, truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled you're hungry again, and you're back for more bread. I mean, you think about what they saw, right? A couple of loaves of bread, a couple of fish. I mean, a meal barely fit for a boy, growing boy at that. And here he divided it up and supernaturally fed all of those people in their back for more. Friends, everything that this world has to offer us, everything that says, I'll fulfill you, I'll make you whole, I'll make you complete, just do this, do that. All of those things, it's on a collision course with finality. It's gonna end, it's not going to last. The Israelites didn't quite grasp that, and many times, neither do we. But Jesus teaches that truth from that very story. In verse 30 of this, uh, of this uh, moment in, in John chapter six, he says, What's, uh, the people ask him, 
What sign are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? I mean, wow, what are you going to do, right? And Jesus' response, I tell you, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they say, sir, give us this bread always. And then he said, verse 35, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. You know what their response was? They complained. They grumbled. Most of them left and didn't follow Jesus anymore after this moment. God draws us to himself and he draws us on his terms, not ours. So many people think money's the answer. A good marriage is the answer. A strong family, a good church, voting the right way, doing certain things to check the boxes in our life, and we all think this is the way. This is how God draws. No, God draws you to himself, and he draws you to Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. People still grumble at the truth that Jesus is the only way. But listen, you must take Christ. You must take the bread of life. You must take and consume that bread of life. Jesus says in verse 47, I tell you, truly, I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. He goes on, he says, this, uh, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's talking about the cross. And at the cross, he gave his body to take the wrath of God upon himself. Listen, when we think about this, what does that look like? How, what, you know how passionate the cookie monster is for cookies, right? C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. Yum, 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 yum. Right? Come on, think about that. We got to be solely focused on Jesus Christ, the bread of life, that there is nothing else we will... Have you ever seen the cookie monster put something other than a cookie in his mouth? It's what it is, man. We got to go to Jesus, and it's only Christ. Jesus, only Jesus. There's nothing else. He is the bread of life. And it goes on to the rock. Look at this. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is talking about this very moment. He says, our ancestors were all under the cloud, the cloud that led them. They, they all passed through the Red Sea. They're all baptized into Moses uh, in the cloud and in the sea. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. They ate some spiritual food and they all drank some spiritual drink. They all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Let me tell you how when the rock is struck, instead of the people, water flowed. People were saved. Jesus is the rock of our salvation, and he was struck for our salvation. Instead of striking the sinful world that we are, God struck Jesus on the cross. Beloved, it's all of Jesus or nothing. It's the bread of life. It's the living water or it is absolutely nothing. He was struck for you. 
Remember what Jesus told the Samaritan woman? If you knew the gift of God and he was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Beloved, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the spirit now flows to God's people and that the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit brings the presence of Christ. We call on him in prayer. We find there our thirst quenched. We find our hunger satisfied. We find our guilt removed and we come to the truth which reminds us that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose that he is moving you forward to look like Christ. There is no greater good in all the world than when God calls a sinner home and offers the bread of life and the living water. And I pray if you have not trusted Jesus yet that you would come and take the bread of life and the living water. Turning to anyone or anything else would be like being thirsty and going out to the bay trying to quench your thirst and only drinking more and more and more, never being satisfied, eventually dying. Turn to the living water. For in Christ, he is working to conform you to the image of his son. If you're here this morning, you find yourself in a tight spot, you find yourself grumbling, stop it. I've told myself so many times that this week. It's rare that I break down in tears when I'm reading and studying and getting this ready, but I broke down this week. I'll finish just by saying, Jesus is enough. He is enough.